Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast number 16. Just a quick reminder to join us this Saturday, February 10th, at the Dead of Winter Festival at Mineral Springs in Alton, Illinois, where Troy and I will be recording a live episode of the podcast and taking questions from the audience. It's free to attend. We only ask that you bring a canned good or other donation item. Find out more at AmericanHauntingsInc.com slash winter. The following contains explicit language, violent stories, and terrible jokes. Listener discretion is advised. St. Louis is a city that has been plagued by the unexplained. Two of the greatest supernatural mysteries in American history can be traced to the city of St. Louis. One of them, the alleged demonic possession of a young boy, has inspired both books and film while the second remains an enigma that is difficult to classify other than as evidence of communication with the spirit world. It began in 1913, a period at the end of the city's Gilded Age. The Great War was on the horizon and the lingering glitter of the St. Louis World's Fair was beginning to tarnish. St. Louis was muddied by vice and criminal activity. The newspapers were filled with bad news. And then along came a story that was filled with hope and mystery. It was a miraculous tale of a local housewife who achieved the impossible with nothing more than a Ouija board and what she believed was the spirit of a dead woman. What was the secret of the housewife, Pearl Curran, and her mysterious benefactor, Patience Worth? And how did she manage to create a mystery that has never been solved? Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. The spiritualist movement, like jazz, was purely an American invention. Although the idea that man was able to communicate with spirits had already existed for centuries, modern belief in such a practice began at the home of the Fox family in Hydesville, New York in 1848. News of the communication with spirits by Kate and Maggie Fox started a revolution in America, then in Britain, across Europe, and finally around the world. The movement, which came to be known as spiritualism, would remain strong for nearly a century. The practice was founded on the belief that life existed after death and that the spirit existed beyond the body. Most importantly, it was believed that these spirits could and did communicate with the living. The movement swept the country, even in those days before radio, television, and mass communication. People became obsessed with this alleged ability to communicate with the dead, and even the most conservative, uneducated, and average people became part of the excitement. Its popularity ebbed and flowed over the years. It saw a resurgence after the Civil War. 
faded somewhat in the late 19th century and then returned with a vengeance at the start of the 20th century. During the heyday of spiritualism, psychic mediums conducted seances for those who wanted to make contact with the other side. By the 20th century, ordinary people became impatient with such arcane methods. They wanted to get in touch with the spirits on their own. They formed what they called home circles, which was really just a group of friends and neighbors who experimented with table tipping and perhaps the greatest invention ever for supernatural enthusiasts, talking boards. Talking boards, or Ouija boards as they're commonly called, were wooden trays that were painted with the letters of the alphabet in two long lines across the surface. They also included the numbers from 1 to 10 and the words yes and no, which helped to speed up communications when the spirits weren't feeling overly talkative. Each board came with a wooden planchette, or a pointer, that the ghosts could move about to spell out messages from the beyond. According to believers, and of course to the marketers of these mass-produced items, the boards allowed ordinary people to communicate with the spirits. Ouija boards appealed to the general public. Some believed in spirits, while others were just looking for a spooky good time. They appeared in newspaper and magazine ads and were sold in toy and novelty stores. Just about every household had one in the early 1900s. Did they really communicate with the spirits? Well, nobody knew, but it was fun to try. In those days, very few people ever reported anything too eerie or unexplainable about a Ouija board, which is why what happened to that St. Louis housewife in 1913 remained so impossible to explain, even after all these years. Before the strange events that began in 1913, Pearl Curran had no interest in the occult. She was born Pearl Leonard Pollard in Mound City, Illinois on February 15, 1883. Her father was a railroad worker and sometimes a newspaper man. She grew up in Texas, playing outdoors and exploring the countryside. Her parents, George and Mary, were quiet, unassuming people. They never demanded much from Pearl, which made her an indifferent student. She left school after the eighth grade and moved to Chicago to study music. She lived with her uncle there and often played piano at his storefront spiritualist church. Her uncle was a believer and a spirit medium, but Pearl had no interest in ghosts or religion. She'd attended Sunday school as a child, but was disinterested in church and never read the Bible. In fact, she never really read much of anything at all. She'd enjoyed some of the popular children's books of the day, like Black Beauty and Little Women, and was entertained by fairy tales, but with so little education, she never developed a love for reading. She certainly was not a writer. Her only creative outlet was playing the piano. As a girl, she dreamed of acting on the stage, but she gave up on that idea when she married John Curran, a widower with a teenage daughter, when she was 24 years old. Her marriage was happy, but as uneventful as her childhood had been. The Currens were not wealthy, but John made a comfortable living. Pearl took care of their home, although she had a maid to take care of most of the household chores. They were a social couple. They enjoyed dining in restaurants, going to the theater, and getting together with friends and neighbors for drinks and to play cards in the evening. John and Pearl seldom read anything aside from the daily newspaper or a magazine. They lived a simple life. They were happy, though, content in their middle-class apartment on Kingsbury Avenue with their family, friends, and acquaintances. They could never have imagined the changes that were coming to their lives. 
Most of John and Pearl's friends were much like they were, ordinary folks who lived a quiet suburban life in St. Louis. But Pearl did have one friend with literary connections. Her name was Emily Grant Hutchings, and her poetry and fiction had appeared in many magazines, including Atlantic Monthly and Cosmopolitan. She was also a regular feature writer for the Sunday Globe Democrat. During the World's Fair, she was on the staff of the General Press Bureau, writing an article a day about the fair for 24 weeks. The stories were printed all over the world. Emily's husband, Charles, was also a newspaper writer and was on friendly terms with author Mark Twain. Emily was also a spiritualist, and a casual visit with Pearl on July 8, 1913, was going to change her friend's life forever. On that hot summer evening, Emily came over for cocktails and brought a Ouija board with her. Pearl had seen talking boards before. She even admitted to experimenting with one with her uncle, but they held little interest for her. It was, she said, a boring and silly pastime. Before July 8th, she had never seen the pointer spell out anything but gibberish. But this time was different. Pearl and Emily placed their hands lightly on the Ouija board's planchette. Pearl's mother, Mary, was visiting, and she sat next to the two women with a pencil and paper, ready to write down any messages that might be spelled out. Well, to their surprise, the message that came through was not gibberish. It made perfect sense, and it read, Many moons ago I lived. Again I come. Patience Worth is my name. The three women were startled. Even Emily, a dedicated spiritualist, had never seen a message quite like that before. Who was Patience Worth? Was she a real person? Pearl was the most skeptical of the three. She sincerely doubted that the dead would make contact with the living using a wooden toy, but Emily urged her to try again. So Pearl asked the sender of the message to tell them something about herself. In moments, the replies began to come. The planchette moved furiously around the talking board telling a strange story. According to the spirit, Patience Worth, she had lived in Dorsetshire, England in either 1649 or 1694, the planchette gave both dates, and she passed on messages using old words like thee and thou. Sometimes she refused to answer their questions directly. When Emily tried to coax more information from her, the spirit first replied, About me ye would know much. Yesterday is dead. Let thy mind rest as to the past. With more urging, though, the spirit went on. She claimed to have been an unmarried woman who had immigrated to America where she was murdered by Indians on Nantucket Island. The initial contact with Patient Worth occurred when Pearl and Emily were both using the Ouija board. However, it soon became evident that Pearl was the one responsible for the contact because no matter who sat with her, the messages from Patients would only come if Pearl had her hands on the planchette. That was spooky enough by itself. The messages that kept coming were even spookier. Patients had an extensive knowledge of not only 17th century speech, but also of clothing, mechanical items, musical instruments, and household articles of the period. Patients criticized Pearl's housekeeping. She informed her through the talking board that, A good wife keepeth the floor well sanded and rushes in plenty to burn. The pewter should reflect the fire's bright glow. But in thy day, housewifery is a sorry trade. Pearl became fascinated with the messages and began devoting more and more of her time to the Ouija board. Soon the messages began coming through so fast that no one could transcribe them. And then Pearl realized that she didn't need the Ouija board anymore. The sentences were forming in her mind at the same time they were being spelled out on the board. Now she began to dictate the messages from patients to anyone who could write them down. She hired a secretary to transcribe what patients told her, but later she recorded the words herself using first a pencil and then a typewriter. 
For the next 25 years, Patience Worth dictated hundreds of thousands of words through Pearl Curran. Her works were vast and were not only personal messages, but creative writing that included nearly 5,000 poems, a play, many short works, and several novels that were published to critical acclaim. All of them written by a ghost. Not long after Patience appeared, the current home began to overflow with friends, neighbors, and curiosity seekers. When word reached the press, Casper Yost, the Sunday editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, began publishing articles about Pearl Curran and the mysterious spirit who seemed to be dictating to her. In 1915, he even published a book about her, and the housewife from St. Louis became a national celebrity. People arrived from all over the country. The Currens, always gracious and unpretentious, welcomed anyone who wanted to witness the sessions when Pearl received information from patients. The curious were followed by authorities in the field of psychic investigation and spiritualists, all of them anxious to see if the messages were evidence of contact with the other side. The Currens never charged admission, and each writing session was conducted openly. There were no spooky seances, candles, or darkened rooms. John Kern was usually in the next room with his buddies, smoking cigars and playing pinochle. Patience Worth Curran, the baby girl that John and Pearl adopted in 1916, would be playing with her toys. There was usually food and drinks, and guests were encouraged to help themselves. All of this would be happening while Pearl sat in the brightly lit living room with her notebook or typewriter, waiting for messages from Patience. When they came through, she would begin to write. Patience produced thousands of poems. One of her more unusual abilities was being able to write poems to suit any topic suggested by people who were present for Pearl's sessions. On January 12, 1926, at Strauss's studio in St. Louis, and during a meeting of the current Topics Club, Patience composed two poems based on random suggestions from club members. They were called Lavender and Lace and Gibraltar. Each poem was presented without any delay. Neither had ever been produced before. The famous poet, Edgar Lee Masters, was asked if anyone could actually write poetry that way, instantly and in response to random topics suggested by a group. Masters replied that it simply could not be done. And yet it was being done, either by a housewife with an eighth grade education or by a ghost. As the popularity of Patience Worth spread, there were just as many people who were amazed by her presence as there were those who doubted she existed at all. Critics simply refused to believe that contact with the ghostwriter was possible. The whole thing had to be an elaborate hoax. For her part, Patience didn't really care. She didn't do much to convince people that she'd ever really lived or died. Witnesses worked hard to get her to offer details about her life, but she seemed to think that her origins were unimportant. The best she would do was mention landmarks around her former home in England. Newspaper man Casper Yost, one of the spirit's greatest defenders, took a trip abroad during the height of Patience's popularity, and when he reached Dorsetshire, he found the cliffs, old monastery, and buildings that Patience had described. This was interesting, but hardly proof. Caspar Yost had proven himself to be not exactly an unbiased witness, and skeptics maintained that Pearl could have found the information about the area at the library. But there was more. A lot more. 
Perhaps the most convincing evidence that Patience was not Pearl's conscious or unconscious creation was the material that she dictated for her books and stories. Patience seemed to be able to not only speak in a number of Old English dialects, but she could also use modern speech, which she did for most of her poetry. One of her novels, The Story of Telka, is a drama about medieval life in rural England. The book is mostly written in Old Saxon speech. It was composed during a series of sessions, and as with all other sessions with patients, there were no revisions and no breaks where sentences left off and began again. Someone else had to figure that out later. Experts stated that the only comparable work to this novel was Wycliffe's Bible of the 14th century, also composed in Old Saxon. The difference between the two books, though, is that the story of Telka was written in such a way that there are a few words that modern readers cannot understand. It was as if the writer wanted to create something that could be understood by 20th century readers. It was argued that it was impossible for a person living in turn-of-the-century St. Louis, even a highly educated one, let alone one with Pearl's limited schooling, to create such a dramatic work and then limit the vocabulary to easily understood words in an ancient form of their own language. It simply could not be done. And yet it was. And this was not Patience's only book. The Sorry Tale was a novel about one of the thieves who was crucified with Jesus. It brought to life the Jews, Romans, Greeks, and Arabs of the period and was filled with an accurate knowledge of the political, social, and religious conditions of the time. It was hailed by book critics as a masterpiece. Spiritualists called it miraculous, and skeptics were still claiming that Patience's books were being written by a housewife with eight years of school and no knowledge of history, religion, or language. At the same time that A Sorry Tale was being produced, written two or three evenings each week in the summer of 1915, another book, The Merry Tale, was also being transcribed as a relief from the sadness of the other book. When Patience began her next book, Hope True Blood, in 1919, sitters who were gathered at Pearl and John's house were astonished. For the first time, the material she was sending was in plain English. Her previous books had been set in ancient Rome, Palestine, and medieval England. The new book, though, was a tale of a young girl trying to find her family in Victorian England. When the book was later published in Britain, no clues were given as to its mysterious origins, and reviewers accepted it as the work of a new and promising British author. It was given widely critical acclaim, and most never knew that it had been allegedly written by a ghost. Readers and critics were impressed by her words, but those who witnessed Pearl taking dictation from patients were astounded by the sheer volume of them. For instance, the story of Telka, which was just over 70,000 words long, was written in several sessions, but completed in just 35 hours. Believe it or not, this kind of speed was typical for the spectral author. Once, in a single evening, she delivered 32 poems and several short stories. On some evenings, patients dictated from four different novels, always resuming the work on each one at the same point she left off. Pearl wrote down every word, always in the presence of witnesses, and never made a single revision. But many still refused to be convinced, or at least they wanted more evidence than her supernatural writing output could offer. They often made requests of patients to try and test her. She never hesitated when she answered their questions, through Pearl, of course, or when she responded to the tasks they came up with. When asked to compose a poem on a certain subject, she would deliver the stanzas so quickly they had to be taken down in shorthand. Weeks later, when asked to reproduce the poem, she could do so without any changes or errors. One night, author and psychical investigator Walter Franklin Prince, a regular visitor at the current home, posed an unusual task for patients. 
He requested that she deliver a poem about the folly of being an atheist, while simultaneously producing a monologue that might occur between a winch and a jester at a medieval fair. Where he came up with this, I have no idea. He also asked that she alternate the dialogue between the two tasks every two or three lines. Not only did Patience accomplish this, but she did it within eight seconds of the request. When she was finished, Pearl said that she felt as if her head had been placed in a steel vice. It should come as no surprise that Pearl's life was forever changed by the arrival of Patience Worth. Pearl often called her alliance with her spirit a wondrous affair, but it demanded a lot from her, both physically and mentally. She never allowed herself to become obsessed with Patience, though. She always took time for herself, her friends, and her family, and she and John never attempted to exploit the partnership for material gain. Aside from the sales from Patience's books and stories, the Currents never charged admission to witness the writing sessions, and they tried to continue living the same life they always had. Pearl continued, with help from her maid, to do all her own shopping, cooking, and housework, and she continued to visit with her friends as she'd always done. Two or three nights each week were set aside for writing sessions, and Patience always dictated to Pearl no matter how many people were in the house. She only stopped when frightened by loud or sudden noises or when Pearl halted to converse with her guests. Pearl explained that as the words flowed into her head, she felt a pressure, and she would see scenes and images appear. She saw the details of each scene that Patience wrote. If two characters were walking along a road, she'd see the roadway, the grass on either side of it, and perhaps the landscape in the distance. If they spoke a foreign language, she would hear them speaking, but above them, she would hear the voice of Patience as she interpreted the speech and told her which parts of the dialogue she wanted in the story. Pearl sometimes saw herself in the scene, standing as an onlooker or walking between the characters. The experience was so vivid that she became familiar with things she never could have known about living in modern-day St. Louis, like lamps, dishes, and cooking utensils used long ago in distant countries, types of clothing and jewelry worn by people in other times, and the sounds and smells of places that she'd never even heard of before. Once during a session, Pearl was shown a small yellow bird. Patience wanted to include it in a poem, but Pearl did not know what kind of bird it was. Finally, Patience became frustrated with her and said... He who knoweth the hedgerows knoweth the yellow hammer. Well, Pearl and John later consulted an encyclopedia and saw that the yellow bird she'd seen was not the same type of yellow hammer that was known in America. It was a breed that was only found in England. No matter how it might sound, Pearl never went into a spiritualist trance during the writing sessions. She understood the words as they came, and yet while dictating them to a stenographer, she smoked cigarettes, drank coffee, and ate. She was always aware of her surroundings, no matter what might be going on in her head. As time passed, Pearl grew jealous of the attention that Patience received. She was the receiver for Patience's words, after all. Why should she not receive some of the accolades? She became determined to produce some writing of her own. Unfortunately, though, it became obvious where the talent in their partnership lay. Pearl's own writings reflected her own lack of talent and education. The Saturday Evening Post ended up purchasing two of her stories, but more for the novelty of their source rather than for their content. Patience was tolerant, although condescending, about Pearl's abilities. This created a sort of love-hate relationship between them. Patience was often irritated with Pearl, but never failed to show her kindness. She simply seemed to think that her human counterpart was slightly stupid, and that only by perseverance was she able to make herself understood, especially when Pearl failed to grasp the spellings and meanings of certain words. There were many occasions when she ended a session in frustration. But the two plotted along together, 
amassing a great body of work until about 1922. That year, the connection between them began to deteriorate. It was largely because of the many changes in Pearl's life that occurred at the time. Pearl became pregnant for the first time at age 39. Then John Curran passed away, leaving Pearl to give birth to a daughter six months after his death. A short time later, Pearl's mother also passed away, and the contact between Pearl and patients began to fade. By then, public interest in the mystery had also faded, especially since no solution had ever been found as to how Pearl had accomplished her remarkable feats. The Roaring Twenties had moved America into the modern age, and suddenly Pearl Curran and her Puritan ghost seemed stodgy and old-fashioned. After the publication of several books and hundreds of poems, interest in patient's worth was replaced by cynicism. Debunkers accused Pearl of hiding her literary talent so she could exploit it in such a bizarre way and become famous. But was this the case? Exhaustive studies have shown this to be highly unlikely, if not impossible. Scholars have analyzed Patience's work and have found it to be accurate in historical detail and written in such a way that only someone with an intimate knowledge of the time could have created it. Pearl died of pneumonia in California on December 4, 1937. Whatever the secret of the mysterious ghostwriter, she took it with her to the grave, leaving a fantastic mystery in her wake. What really happened in one of the great St. Louis mysteries of all time? Did a spirit really speak through Pearl Curran from beyond the grave? Or did Pearl come up with all of those writings on her own? History has failed to provide answers. There were several women named Patience Worth who were listed on passenger logs of sailing ships that came to America in the 17th century, and yet there's no evidence that any of them were the Patience Worth who spoke through Pearl. But experts who studied Pearl doubted she could have produced the words attributed to Patience on her own. She was a woman of limited education with no natural writing ability, no knowledge of the language used, or of the history and subject matter that was written about by Patience Worth. Simply put, Pearl could not have created such works of literary quality on her own. But someone did. Could Patience have been created from Pearl's unconscious mind? Was she Pearl's secondary personality, one that had been unknowingly created by her somehow amassing the vast knowledge that was needed to produce the allegedly unearthly messages? This too seems unlikely. Because in the rare occasions when secondary personalities have been documented, they've always been shown to take over the main personality for a time. This was not true in Pearl's case. Her personality coexisted with that of Patience Worth, whether she was real or not, and Pearl was aware of that fact. So what did happen in St. Louis in 1913? Was this a true case of afterlife communication, or was this the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the literary and spiritualist communities? We'll never know for sure. It seems we have, as Sherlock Holmes advised, attempted to eliminate the impossible in this case so that we could be left with, however improbable, the truth. But what if the truth also seems to be impossible? To believe in this story, we have to believe in the idea that a ghost named Patience Worth managed to write books, poems, and stories through the physical hand of Pearl Curran. Seems impossible, doesn't it? Or maybe not. I guess we'll just have to leave the possibility of the story up to you to decide. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. 
They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? Yeah. Did a spray really speak that? You know, okay, okay. <clears throat> Let's try it again. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay. All right, I think we're ready. Hey. Here we go. On that note. All right, everybody good? Yep. Okay. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 16, which is the third episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, well, this is another, uh, this was a, this was another fun month, I think. They're all fun I, I, Actually, well, yeah, they are, but um, in all honesty, and this is complete transparency here, Okay. I have very real. much enjoyed the St. Louis episodes yeah. because only because while I really I did enjoy the Alton stuff and it was fun doing it with you as a is kind of a different kind of thing. Yep. But after you've done that tour or told those stories for thousands and thousands of times. Literally, yeah. It was yeah, literally. Yeah. It um this has been the you know, moving over to St. Louis has been like a refresher. And, you know, planning out what we were going to do for all of the St. Louis episodes. This may be uh, the longest season ever because we've got a lot of plans for not only a lot of stories, but breaking up some of the really big stories into multiple episodes. So, uh, but but I thought this one was fun. This is one that, um, you know, is uniquely St. Louis. Absolutely. And it's um, one of those stories that 
you know, some people may be familiar with, but they may not know exactly, you know, the details behind it, that kind of thing. And it was just, yep. it was a fun episode to do. So. Yeah, I, I had never heard the story. And I, I personally love the St. Louis stories because when I Google them, things come up. And aside yeah. from your stuff, so yeah, I can see yeah. what do other people have to say about it. Sure, they can weigh especially in. this one. This has been around for so long. There was yeah. so much yeah. about this episode that it took me... A ridiculous amount of time to do even just my research and my my due diligence on this thing so to sum it up this story uh, is about pearl curran a young housewife with an eighth grade education claims to be channeling the spirit of patience worth and writes a ridiculous and impressive amount of content <laughs> yes uh, but we'll get back to that in a minute but right now we have some quick housekeeping items. yeah well you know um this this coming weekend uh, after this podcast airs will be the uh, 20th annual Dead of Winter Festival 20th. Uh, held in Elton, um, and that's February the 10th. Uh, we are going to be doing a live episode. Uh, well, okay, we're going to be recording a live episode. Let's not get carried away because right. we can't be live anywhere. <laughs> yes, so, yeah, no, um, the censors would never we're allow We're going to be recording an episode live at the festival. We've got a story that doesn't, it's not a St. Louis story. It is a... Uh, a winter ghost story. Yep. In fact, one of the things I, that that kind of clinched that this would be the story is that it involves a young girl whose body was found on February 10th, which is the so it's anniversary of the show. Uh, you know, February 10th of 1916. So mm -hmm. it is uh, the anniversary of the festival. Everything happens at the same time. So uh, we're going to make that part of our show uh, with some audience participation. So it should be fun. Yep. Um, Free fun stuff. and perhaps, for Cody anyway, a lot of cold sweat. Wondering how we're going to make this thing work. Oh, but, yeah. It's uh, be so ridiculous. bear with us. The, uh, I'll and it out. After, the, after the festival, we'll be airing that as one of our episodes. But it'll be coming up this, this Saturday after you hear this. This episode um, and it is a free event it runs from 10 to 5 it's at the Mineral Springs uh, Hotel in Alton 301 East Broadway in Alton um, and as I said it is a free event during the day with a catch sort of a catch um, and I'll let Lisa explain what I mean Okay, this is really not a catch. Not you can't catch. call this a catch. Right. No. Yeah. It's free. It's but. totally free. But yeah. we would really love it if uh, everyone who comes to the Dead of Winter event could bring an item or a monetary donation is also just fine. But we are hoping for some items for the local food banks. And so first thing you think of is a canned food item. That's awesome. You can bring canned food items, and we will love those. But I also invite you to think about some of the other things that you use around your home that people may be without. So think about maybe toilet paper, paper towels, diapers is a huge thing. I mean, those of you who have children, you know how important diapers are in your life. Uh, light bulbs, uh, just simple things that you use around your house are also really important. And this time of year... Some of the people in our communities are really struggling to make ends meet with these kinds of items and trying to live without these kinds of items. And it's just not fair, you guys. So please bring these things with you. Bring canned food, anything that works for you. And if you don't have time to stop by your grocery store or Walmart or wherever there is, bring some money and we'll take care of it for you. So that is just as good as your entry fee. And we look forward to seeing all of you. Absolutely. And if you, uh, we don't ask for much, but if you show up without something, I will walk up to you, <laughs> pretend to know you, and start a conversation 
very awkwardly, and I will force you to talk to me as if we are old friends that you cannot remember. Yeah, you're going to want to bring a canned good. Yeah. So, yeah. Going to bring a canned good. Yeah, It'll exactly happen. To keep that from happening. Yes, yes. So, uh, but yeah, we're going to be doing a, a live show, um, and and that's not just us. I mean, we are not going to be doing seven hour live show. No, no. Although, no. if you've ever heard me try to get through one of these monologues, sometimes it does sometimes take that long. Oh, Troy or could talk for seven seem hours to be close to that, but. Um, there are a lot of other speakers there. Uh, we've got some uh, some really cool stuff going on. Uh, Dave Nunnally from It's Raining Zen going to be talking about the Mineral Springs. Uh, Cody and I will be doing the, the live broadcast. Um, Dave Goodwin, uh, my friend who wrote uh, The Ghost of Jefferson Barracks, which is a great St. Louis uh, book and story, which we'll be featuring on the podcast a little bit later on in the season. Uh, Dave will be speaking. Um, he is a police officer and is going to be sharing some stories of paranormal events and police officers, which these are not stories that uh, we as civilians normally hear. So right. Dave's going to be sharing that. Um, we've got Coy and Felicia Pittman from, uh, who have their own podcast, yep. uh, and their own ghost investigations and Gavin Kelly and Paula Purcell, who actually have a show right now, Paranormal Journey on, um, they have a show on, uh, the Amazon prime channel right now. If you've got Amazon prime, um, it's free. If it's, you know, part of your, you know, if you're a prime member, uh, you can go watch Paranormal Journey right now and kind of get boned up on it for the event and they're going to be talking about their show and some of their own experiences so um, it's going to be it's going to be a really fun day and we hope to see you there um, we're also going to be doing a live show at the Haunted America Conference and we'll talk more about that later uh, but that's going to be a little bit different of a show we're going to be doing um, a live recording during the what we call strange stuff and we'll talk about that a little bit later we've got a few months on that but I, I will warn you though uh, as far as the conference goes, a lot of the after-hour events are already filling up. So if you're interested in the conference, um, you want to check into that uh, because as more time is ticked in, we're almost a third of the way already sold out for this year. So, and we've never sold out this fast before. So, um, and you know, it's a third of the way. That's still that's still a lot of right. people who've already signed up. So you don't want to miss out on that. So. Um, the other thing, before we get started on this, I do want to, again, tell everybody how much we appreciate um, all of the comments, all of the reviews that you're leaving for us in various places, especially on the iTunes app. Um, that seems to be the place where the reviews, the actual written reviews, have the most effect, and it makes it easier for people to find us. Uh, we do, we, we read them all. Uh, we do. We wish we could respond to all of them. Actually, on the app, we can't. Right. And yes, and we are, as you probably will have noticed from this episode, working on the audio. We right. we listen to you, and we are constantly working on it. Um, I well, okay. I say we are working on it. I'm not working on it at it's all. The Cody Roy, is, the royal but we. Uh, it, yes. it is. It is. We are working on it. So um, hang in there. So thank you. Yes, as Lisa said, turn it up. Thank you. Thank you. So, and I know anyway. we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because Lux is here with us, too. So, yes. She's, who now looks very, because I mentioned her name, now she's unhappy. <laughs> so, she's very unhappy that I mentioned her name. And we we do make jokes, but we we're, we make these we really jokes are to, sh to show yeah. that we do listen to your feedback. We, we really appreciate it. We and uh, we're working on all of it. And uh, yeah, thank you again for for your your reviews yeah. and your feedback. Yeah. Now, so let's get started. You ready to dive yes, in? Okay. So I got a hit it heavy hitter right now. First question, Troy Taylor, can you 
commit to me on this podcast right now that you have not, in fact, been using a ghostwriter for your books <laughs> in yeah. the past. Yes. And channeling I, some channeling, I am channeling thousands of words every single day from a ghost named Bob. Bob. And he, uh, he sailed across... The ocean blue in 1492. Missed right, America right somehow, and has been telling me these stories. Now, um, I mean, really, it's it's an impressive I amount of work. I love the story. It is yeah, an impressive amount is. of work, and we're going to talk about you know di different reasonings, and you know, I have my own conclusion that I kind of come to in the end. But I will give a little bit of a spoiler that regardless of how it's happening, it is impressive it is as impressive. hell. Yeah, it is amazing. It is. Um, Anyway, okay, so we, I want to first get started off. Um, this, so this is the time of spiritualism, and I've definitely heard of this term a lot, but can you, can you teach me more about that? Tell me more about exactly what the, the spiritualism movement. Yeah, well, you know, and actually, uh, honestly, I mean, for the, for the, the monologue and mm -hmm. for, for this story, um, I kind of enhance the importance of, of spiritualism at this particular period. Okay. Because um, it, it, went in through, it went through waves, of popularity mm -hmm. um, when it started in 1848, and I think let's 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 begin with that. And yes. I don't listen. I don't want to get. I mean, I can do, I could do three hours on spiritualism and seances and the Fox sisters. I know you could. Um, I wrote a book called American Hauntings. Check that out. Um, anyway, nice um, in this particular case, the the Fox sisters sort of invented the modern version of spirit communication with. Um, knocking sounds, communicating with the spirit who was supposedly haunting their house in New York. Mm -hmm. And that really, when the, when the news spread, and this was, again, you know, pre-internet days, of course, I mean, really, all there were were newspapers back in that time. Yeah. Um, this was the beginning of, you know, say, the telegraph wire. It was not, there was not any kind of mass communication back then. Um, but word spread, and millions of people, and, and I'm not using that word lightly, mil I, I mean that literally, millions. millions of people became fascinated with spiritualism. And today we don't realize just how many people were involved in this movement. Um, it was a major, let, let me put it this way, spiritualism was side by side with Lutheranism, Methodism, Presbyterian churches, everything. It's one of the it big was, players. It was one of the big players in into the 1850s. Um, but toward the end of the 1850s, the fad kind of started to die off. I mean, well, well, just, uh, and that's that, you know, and uh, that pun, ha, pun intended. Put, uh, well, pun but, intended well, just, but. just in general, is it is it a lot? Is it basically a hodgepodge or combination of mysticisms and, and well, no, not not things, really. Or? I mean, it, it really didn't start out to be like a religious faith. It started out to be more of a novelty, more than anything, because. You know, people believed in ghosts. They mm -hmm. believed in in hauntings and things like that. And now suddenly, we had an easy way to communicate with the dead. I mean, the stories, you know, the history of communication with the dead go back to the days of the Bible. For I mean, sure. they've been around forever. But it wasn't for everybody to be able to do. Well, suddenly here were these two girls who, you know, may or may not have some sort of psychic abilities who could communicate with the uh, the the spirit of a of a peddler who supposedly died in their house, right? Right. So the popularity of this is, you know, these are people looking at it, and go, well, if these young girls can do it, then we can too. And suddenly there were mediums all over the place who were, you know, offering to allow people to communicate with their dead relatives. I yeah. mean, this was a, this was a, a, you know, people 
back in those days, people died at a much younger age than they do now. Mm -hmm. So you had, especially children, you had a lot of death. I mean, it was something that people were familiar with. I wouldn't say comfortable with, but they were used to it happening. Right. But, you know, way when life. this person was gone, and, and, and again, in those days, you didn't have a picture. Let's say that your child died. Well, you most likely didn't have a picture to remember them by because photography was in its infancy. And, and that's day. why the postmortem photography it isn't as so weird right. as it seems it's now. It's not weird. It was right. never intended to be weird. It was a case of, and I think we've talked about we this have, before. Yeah. You know, this was people who didn't have any other way to remember their children. Yeah. You know, so, or, you know, their husband or wife or brother, sister, whatever. But this was a case of where you now had a chance to talk to these people again that you never, ever thought you would have. Right. And spiritualism offered that. Now, there were, of course, a lot of frauds. I mean, there was a lot of fakery because anything like this, exactly. There was an opportunity to make money, and so people took advantage of it. Yeah. But there were also a lot of people who were very sincerely involved in this and either believed in their abilities or believed in the abilities of the people that were paying to do this. So it became extremely popular. And by the late 1850s, though, you know, like every other fad, I mean, America is a nation of extremes. We've mm -hmm. always have been. We always will be. Uh, maybe it's because we're such a young nation compared to the Relatively rest of the world. Speaking, you right. know. Um, so, you know, we've always had things take off right away and then they die out, mm -hmm. you know. Um, in this particular case, spiritualism lasted for about a decade and then people began to sort of lose interest because it became one of those things where it's, you know, it became really hard to really nail that down. You mm -hmm. know, um, yes, I have a message from Aunt Sally who died, but can I prove it? Yeah. You know, um, so people began to lose interest and then the Civil War happened. I was going to say a lot of these these trends and these fads, they seem to be they pop up whenever a country has downtime. Well, and that's know? exactly what happened here, except in this case, you had, you know, tens of thousands, um, you know, uh, several hundred thousand people died. Yeah. Um, and these were not these were not, you know, old people. These were young guys. They yeah. were young men yeah, young on men. the prime of their life. Um, anywhere from age 14 to, you know, in their 40s, who suddenly you've got, you know, brothers, cousins, husbands, you know, all gone, yeah. you know, just gone. And so the popularity of spiritualism sort of took a resurgence. And I always like to say that it was uh, the Lincolns who saved spiritualism because oh, really? Mary Lincoln popular popularized it in the White House because after her son Willie died, she became really interested in spiritualism and began conducting seances in the White House. Seances in the White House. And so New band with, name. with the president, you know, with the president involved in this, you know, um, and because there were a lot of second, I mean, Lincoln never came out and said, oh, I'm going to seance tonight. It was people who were involved in the seances said he was there. And whether or not he was a believer, and I like to think he was because this was a man who was very, throughout his entire life, was very involved in mysticism and, you know, belief in ghosts and premonitions. And everybody's probably heard the stories of Lincoln and his dreams that he had, like the, the premonition he had on election night in 1860 when he was first elected president. He said that he saw an image in the mirror of himself, two faces of himself, one that looked lifelike and one that was white and pale. And when he told Mary about this, she said that she believed that it meant that he would be elected to two terms. 
in the presidency, but would not survive the second. Oh, wow. Um, and then shortly before he was assassinated, he told Mary and uh, his friend um, uh, Ward Hill Lehman and several other people on his staff in the cabinet about a dream he'd had about coming into the White House and hearing people crying and weeping. And he had said to one of the soldiers standing on duty, I mean, who has died in the White House? And they said the president, he was killed by an assassin. Now, this happened a couple of weeks before he was killed. So I always like to think that he probably willingly went to these seances, not just because, you know, Mary wanted him to come. And, um, you know, so the popularity of this, and, and word spread about the Lincolns, and, and especially Mary and her seances. Of course. And I think that that kind of popularized spiritualism all over again. Yeah. And for years afterward, and by the end of the Civil War and into the 1870s, by this time, the, the fad had lasted long enough that a lot of scientists and other people became in, interested in seeing if there was something to it or not. Yeah. And I think that's what kept it going, but... Honestly, by the early 1900s, when this story takes place, by then, spiritualism had become less of a major movement and more of, as proven by the fact that they were playing around with Ouija boards, yeah. more of a novelty thing again. Right. You know, um, Ouija boards had really come in. I mean, they had been around since the probably the 1870s and into the late 1800s, but you know, by the turn of the century and into the early 1900s, they were more of a parlor game than they were anything else, Absolutely. at least in my opinion. I'm sure right. there are historians that might, you know, could point out a lot of different things, but in popular culture, mm -hmm. which is what I've, I've kind of tried to deal with with this kind of thing um, when writing about spiritualism and this kind of thing, is for most people, you know, by then, spiritualism wasn't, they, they weren't doing it because of that. They were doing it because it was fun. Because, yeah, it's a, you know, it's they a fun were getting trick together, get together and having their own seances, or they were getting together for table tipping parties, which is essentially, you know, a group of people sitting around a table with their fingers lightly placed on it like you would a planchette with a Ouija board. And then when the, you know, the, the ghosts would answer questions, the tables would tip. And, yeah. You know, and there are scientific reasons for all these oh, things we'll, and we'll electromagnetic energy and kinetic energy. And all, there's all kinds of explanations for it. But for it, sure. was, it was fun. It was fun. And so when Emily Hutchins brought over that Ouija board to Pearl Kern's apartment that mm -hmm. night, I think she might have been a spiritualist. Pearl could have given a crap less right. about it. She didn't care, wasn't interested, thought the whole thing was silly. You know, my guess is that the time that she had spent with her uncle in his spiritualist church, and, and, yeah. I think there was a lot of eye rolling going on. That's my guess. For sure. And and, she really wasn't impressed. And we're gonna we're gonna get into yeah. that. I, I do want to touch a little bit real quick. I, not too much, but a little bit on the Ouija board because we've talked about it before, we so have. I don't want to dive yeah. in. Yeah. But I do want to I do want to put it out there. If you're interested in Ouija boards, look up the idiomotor effect. I studied it yeah. at SIUE. Sure. I was a psychology major. It's hilarious. We experimented on freshmen. It was great. Um, but some of these things with with um, with Pearl, and you talk about the the Ouija board and her channeling everything. What I kind of wonder is, you know, what ends up being more terrifying? Is it that she's channeling something through a Ouija board that's coming from outside of her, or it's all her and the calls are coming from inside the house? Yeah, right? there you go. Either right, way, right. It's, it's terrifying. It's pretty. It's it's creepy and terrifying no matter how you look at it. And yeah. we're and you mentioned, you know, her uncle Pearl Pearl Kern. Her uncle was a medium. Um, I also read somewhere else, and I was wondering if you could confirm this or not, but that her father was actually also a writer. 
writer for some newspapers in the Ozarks, but I don't I didn't read it from your book. I found it online, so I'm not yeah. sure. Well, he was a, he was a newspaper man. I didn't um I I don't know exactly where he wrote, uh-huh. but he was a part-time newspaper man. Yeah, so I'm, he he had done some writing. Cuz yeah. I I'm you know I'm trying to put all this together and figure out Okay, you know how how could know. you have possibly sure. been a writer or, wh- or what was going on? And you mentioned the eye rolling at church. It talks about how she you know only went to church to kind of play the piano, um, and it, it really reminds me. I have to just bring this up of uh, Charlie Brock as my friend who did the music sure, for some yeah, of this yeah. podcast because he mostly goes to church to play the piano, <laughs> and and it mentions Pearl not liking to read books. The only book Charlie read in high school was Fight Club, and it was not a, it was not assigned. He just read it because he wanted to. And so I, f- I found those similarities really funny. But you also mentioned that one of the books Pearl she didn't like to read, but she read Little Women. I happened to look over as I was typing, and I had Little Women sitting on my bookshelf. <laughs> I grabbed it. It is a six hundred page book. Yeah. Well, and, and I was like, okay. Well, and and again though, it's one of those. But it was one of those books that all I think young young women read at the time. Okay. All right. You know. I mean, Black Beauty and you right. Know, that, that was the other one. Stuff. Yeah, these were early 1900s titles that were common. I'm sure that there was probably you know Peter Pan, so and Scarlet that. And Letter of the Day tales, or something you have to read that kind of thing. So she read a lot of that kind of stuff that what kids read. But she didn't. But she was not a reader. She right. was not someone who would purposely go out and buy books. I yep. mean, that was one of the things that was always noted about her and her husband both. They read magazines and stuff. You know, there were a lot of popular magazines of the day, a lot, you know, more than we have now. I know. What are magazines? Yeah, I know. Um, But But, there were a lot of. Right. There were a lot of popular magazines of the day, and they they did like to go to the theater and that kind of thing. But, you know, they went to see shows. They weren't avid readers. She was not, she was not a. No matter how you look at it, whether you want to believe that it came from inside of her head or outside of her head, this, she was not a reader. She was not a literary person. And, I've always had a lot of trouble, and I know we'll get to this, but I've always had a lot of trouble as to how she came up with this stuff. I mean, this is not, you can't, you could Google this stuff back then. I mean, where did, where did she come up with these things? She would have had to have read it in a book if it wasn't coming from outside. And even then, I mean, even then, what, what kind of book was at the St. Louis Library in 1913, 1914, 15, that would tell you the minor details of household life in medieval England at yep. the time, or in Palestine at the time of Christ. I mean, these are not. This is not common knowledge, ordinary reading, right? Yep. And this right. is she didn't this, see it on TV, and this and is she what, didn't hear it on the radio. This is none of that exists. I'm I'm so excited about this one because regardless of how it ends, I'm still impressed, oh, yeah, and, I still love, and I love and I love the story. Still a mystery. So we're gonna dive into that. So, but we've talked a little bit about Pearl, but now let's talk about. Patience. Okay. So patience worth. Doesn't that just uh, sound like a metaphor or like something or like it's Pearl with wordplay trying to sh- express that she's messing with people or like patience is worth having or like or something? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, well, patience was in the, in was? the 1600s. Okay. The 1700s. Maybe I'm just yes. interpreting it the wrong way, but I feel no, like she's trying to that's, call it out. That's, yeah, it is. It was an old name for the time. It's, it's kind of like now if you look back. Is it like at, Ethel? Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> if you look at like, you know, Ethel or even Pearl, for that matter, Ethel or Pearl or Esther. Yeah. Right? I mean, these are names that, that were common, you know, uh, Eunice, yeah, you know, Gertrude. I mean, these were not Classics. names. Now we, now, we, now we think of these names and we think of like, oh, you know, that's an old lady. But it wasn't then. It wasn't I mean, then. it was, uh, you know, that was a very, these were very common names. 
and um, but then go back from there, go back to you know the 1800s or the 1700s. Then you have names like you know Hester and uh-huh. Patience, and you know if you look at the names of like you know the Pilgrims and that kind of right, thing, you right. have these 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 almost what we would consider to be these these kind of dour or even biblical names. It was and, appropriate for the time. You know, patience is, is, isn't that one of the four, you know, hope? Yeah, the truth, virtues and things. Yeah, are, isn't that yeah. one of the virtues? So really that's, that's a common name for the time period that the spirit claimed to be from. Mm-hmm. You know, would right. would have been a pretty common name. Okay, then that no, that makes sense. And but I, actually, I see what you're saying as yeah, well. Well, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I guess yeah. I'm thinking of it too, too not relative to the time. But well, you're I, thinking of it very uh, psychologically. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I and I saw in my in my research, I saw pictures of Pearl, and um, first off, I thought she was gorgeous, and that she looks like someone that would have like attended the shows I used to play back in college and high school. <laughs> you know, like she looked a little like she was open minded and stuff. Um, I, I found it funny that you mentioned in your in your story that pa- patients would criticize Pearl's housework. Yeah, and it's like, can you imagine having some voice channeling through you in your head, and it's just giving you shit and yeah, t- right, talking right. to you like you this know, isn't clean enough. Well, I th- I think her I think her problem with her was is that she had a maid and her house was still a mess. I right. think that was kind okay, of the deal. Right. And so she's like, you know, in my day, you know, in <laughs> my day, this was an art, you know, and and now you're a slob, you know. Um, first off, I think they had a missed opportunity. Uh, you know, we talk about later how they didn't really try to make money off of this, but I right. think, which is impressive well, I mean, in its some, own you way. Know, they didn't charge admission, but you know, when I say that, that they didn't do it for there's still money game, involved. There's somehow. still money involved yeah. because these books were being sold. Uh, right. I, and I mean, and you know, some of the, some of them, I, be, I honestly believe were being sold as, Ooh, look! It's you know written by a ghost. But you know, like the Hope Trueblood book was yep. published in England, and no one had any idea. They just thought it was a story, right? Because um, it was the details were accurate. But I mean, I mean right. right, right. But you're you're also not talking about you know we're not talking about huge money. I I, I, I don't know how much money they made. I wish I knew exactly. I I'd, yeah. I'd be curious myself. But right. let's just say they weren't getting rich. Right. They didn't move into a mansion. I mean, they were still living in that same apartment on Kingsbury mm-hmm. Avenue that they've been living in since they got married. Yeah. I mean, nothing ever changed. Um, they they never they didn't have a lavish lifestyle, um, which I think, you know, is important to the story for the legitimacy. I mean, it it I is think, right. Yeah. Ex- exactly. They weren't you know they weren't cashing in trying to get wealthy on the idea that she was channeling a ghost. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I think by the time it was all over. Um, it's hard to say if she was glad that it happened or not, mm-hmm. because it really it, it completely upended their lives. Yeah, I mean the the happy life they had, which they tried to maintain um, as best they could, but they still had people showing up at their house, and you know, and and you know, people like you know Casper Yost and and Walter Prince who would come and you know and did these in depth studies mm-hmm. of all the things that were going on. What a hassle well, for a couple of people who were. Trying to live Pretty a quiet just life. Just simple people, yeah. you know, just kind of living their life, kind of thing. Right. And this, this all seems somewhat nightmarish. I mean, really, yeah. in the end, I mean, I don't know. In, I mean, in, in, well, you know, however, the she was getting the information and writing it. Like it's like working that hard every single night, regardless of how it's yeah. happening, has to be exhausting. Oh, I think so. You're burning the candle at yeah, both I ends. I think so too. Two or three. You know, they make it sound like well, it wasn't all the time. It was only two or three nights a week. Can you imagine? 
what that must have been for hours I mean, at a time. You would know better than most. Yeah, like 2,000 words a night. Yeah, but with being cranked through your head. And, you know, when she said that a couple of times, you know, this guy comes in and says, oh, well, let's come up with this. And then yeah. I don't even know where he came up with that. But came up with this elaborate thing of, you know, let's write a poem, one poem about this. And I also want you to do a dialogue between a winch and a jester at a medieval fair. Yeah. Who even thinks of that, for starters? But then, and then alternated every two or three lines. And then she says that it feels like that her head's in a steel vice. Right. I think even if you were, you know, faking the whole thing, your head would feel like it was in a... Which actually, why, that would be worse, probably, than a which ghost. Which is why, it's, so, it's, why you know. it's so impressive to me. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. If you like the American Hauntings podcast, then you're probably going to like the services, books, and tours offered by our various sponsors, like American Hauntings, Inc., which has been a publisher of books on ghosts and hauntings, crime, and the unexplained in America since 1993. In addition, we also offer tours, overnight ghost hunts, and weekend excursions, plus the Haunted America Conference, which is coming up in June 2018 in Alton, Illinois. You can find out more information about the company at AmericanHauntings.net. Another of our sponsors is It's Raining Zen in the mysterious Mineral Springs Mall in Alton, Illinois. They're Alton's only authentic new age and metaphysical shop, offering everything from crystals to Himalayan salt lights, healing herbs, charms, tarot cards, and even an assortment of clothing. You can find them on East Broadway in Alton or on Facebook by searching for It's Raining Zen. We're also sponsored by the Best Western Premier Hotel in Alton, Illinois, the home away from home for American hauntings, and the host for the Haunted America Conference. The Best Western Premier is a newly renovated location with facilities for conferences, weddings, an outdoor fire pit, brand new bar, and standalone restaurant and grill. We highly recommend it and we know you'll love it too while visiting the area. You can find them on College Avenue in Alton or by searching on the Best Western website. We also recommend the I Had That store located at 125 East Main Street in Belleville, Illinois. This is the number one spot in the St. Louis and Southwestern Illinois region for vintage toys and games from the 1970s and 80s, as well as a huge selection of horror-related toys, games, figures, books, and much more. You can find the store on Facebook by searching for I Had That Toy. And now, on with the show. I was talking about that is I think they missed an opportunity. They could have had a traveling show called Testing My Patience, <laughs> oh, and they man. really missed out on cashing <laughs> in on that. Well, too early for reality TV. I know, there, but so. oh, I love it. But so that kind of leads us into I uh, do want to talk a little bit That's more. Good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was pretty good. I appreciate Most that. Most of the time I just groan. That one was I know. And we, I, aim, I usually <laughs> aim to make you groan. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about the actual content um, that, sure. that they produce. So some of the ghost books, as I've called them, include the story of Atelka, the Sorry Tale, Hope True Blood, um, 5,000 poems, and a play. Uh, one question. Here's I, my question. Yep. I got a question for you. Yeah. Where are they? Well, because they I've were all there, published. I've heard there are 29 volumes worth of her shit at the, the St. Louis. Yes, yes. Uh, but why somewhere? aren't they just floating around? I mean, how mass-published were they? See, I don't, I don't know. That's well, I, did, a question. I found one on Amazon because I was yeah. like, I have to buy one of these as ghost a, books. As a, as a you know, former bookseller yeah. and, and as a writer, I, I always wonder why I don't see them more often. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I well, mean, well, the, her friend Emily Wright had had the book with Mark Twain that apparently just did right. not sell well, at all. Right. And I didn't even delve into that much. Yeah. But Emily it's, Hutchings, let's just give you know our listeners a, a piece. After all this happened, 
um, Emily Hutchings and Pearl Curran had a falling out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I'm going to I'm gonna go way out on a limb here and say it had something to do with jealousy. Um, no. They had a falling out, and then suddenly Emily Hutchings began channeling the ghost of Mark Twain, or so she claimed. He's always in our stories. I know, somehow, right? We and the St. Wait. Louis is going to get the worst. Of course, yeah, but, of course. So she begins channeling the ghost of Mark Twain and writes a book you know, claiming that it came from Mark Twain, and and I'll be honest with you, it had nothing. The quality, let's just say, the quality was not Twain quality uh-huh. here, and uh, it it did it sold nothing. And I didn't I didn't even include that in the story. Yeah, it was just a little blip. Yeah, but I'm glad that you mentioned it though, because I find that to be funny, which again tells you about the the whole thing with Pearl and all the attention that she was getting. Yeah, the publicity that she was getting. Uh, was enough to have a falling out with what was essentially her best friend, mm-hmm. and who then tried to come up with a competing ghost. Because, well, and if Mark, you could do Patience Worth, I can do Mark Twain. And you'd think right? Mark Twain's the better seller of right. the two, so they would right. continue but on. But no so. one's going to believe that. Right. But, know, that's, so. but that kind of helps you know, with your question is why aren't these things around anymore? Why, why aren't, well, the why aren't there more, more of them because of the way it was published? But, you know, that does remind me, and it has nothing to do with, with this, but it, it did – put a blip in my head. There yeah. was a woman, I believe in the 60s, whose name was Rosemary Brown, who claimed that she was channeling music from like dead, like Mozart and Brahms and Bach uh-huh. and all these people. And she claimed that she was channeling their unfinished symphonies, symphonies uh, oh, that they had okay. died before they could complete them. And so now she had all the music and did the same thing. Right. And didn't get, I mean, it was no, you know, we're not talking... Pearl Curran, Patience Worth kind of publicity, but yeah. but I do remember it showing up, in, and here we go again with Fate Magazine that we talked about a yeah, couple episodes ago. Uh, I remember it being in Fate Magazine, and there was actually a book that she wrote that was a you know semi-moderate bestseller, kind of mm-hmm. around the time of Bridie Murphy, which... You're does, looking at me blankly. Does not ring we'll, a bell. We'll get to that. I'm sure at some okay. point we're going to be talking about, I don't know, somewhere along the line, reincarnation is going to come into our thing here, and we'll we'll talk about that well, more. Now but, it is. Well, it was one of those big, you know, uh, po- and again, popular culture and the paranormal is I, I love. For sure. And it was one of those things that in the 50s really took off mm-hmm. with this woman claiming that she was the reincarnation of, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah. But the Rosemary Brown thing reminded me a lot of the Patience Worth story because, I mean, it was music instead of writing, and she didn't claim Patience Worth was never, you know, supposed, supposed to be famous. famous. Person, Nobody yeah. had ever heard of her. So, which I think is why the story, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't want to say had more legitimacy because I just don't know. But it's a different um, angle, right? But it wasn't You're not right. over the top. Yeah, we're not talking about, um, we're not talking about, um, you know, someone like Mark Twain that we've all heard of. Uh, to, so to the, to the quality of the content, um, there is an excerpt that I found that I do want to read just to show that because it's so impressive. It's it's impressive no matter which way you look at it. This is a woman who is supposed to have just an eighth grade education. Right. And I just want to read this because I, I thought it was amazing. It's an excerpt from uh, a poem. I, I believe it's a poem called The Earth, the Fields Lay Stretched in Sleep. And the lines are, dead, all dead. The earth, the fields lie stretched in sleep like weary toilers overdone. The valleys gape like toothless age, besnaggled by dead trees. The hills like bony jaws whose flesh hath 
dropped, stand grinning at the deathly day. And it's just very vivid, interesting yeah, it is. adjectives. It, it just, it just for someone that is supposed to have an eighth grade education and be a housewife and, and just to pull this stuff out and, and this With is only no a, interest in right, it whatsoever. Right. And it's not, you know, and one of the things that I, I really, I, that I'm glad we had the conversation because to clarify this, I, I always say this woman is a housewife, this woman, that's not the, the point isn't that she's a woman. It's the point right. that she's someone with an eighth grade education yes. with no interest in, in books right. or writing or the literary field. Yep. It doesn't matter if she's a man or a woman. It makes no difference. It's the fact that, that this is someone who has no education, who's now writing um, these in-depth books about living in, you know, ancient Palestine mm -hmm. or medieval England with all of these details that, no, I don't know, know where she could have gotten them. It's the, it's I the guess contrast. That's what, that's what is so appealing or so interesting about the story. It, it's the contrast or the juxtaposition of someone could, that could have so much detail and, and do such great work that should have no knowledge of these right. types of things and didn't express any interest right. in them. And that's what it is. So yes, it's not. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why, when talking about her background in the in the in the story body of the story, here I just kept mentioning. She didn't go to Sunday school. Yeah. She didn't read the Bible. Yeah. She didn't, you know, didn't read books. She didn't, I mean, it wasn't because, I mean, patients thought she was kind of stupid, but I, I, that's never been my thought. My yeah. thought has always been she was a product of her times. This was a young woman who grew up at a time where it wasn't imperative for anyone to have an education, let alone a woman yeah. at the time, to have an education. And so she just never had one and had no interest in it, and ha but had a nice life. Yeah. I mean, she was very comfortable in her, li in her life. Her husband, I mean, her husband was no smarter than she was. Yeah. I mean, he, he didn't have any interest in any of it, anything literary or, you know, anything to do with writing. I mean, he read the newspaper. He read mm -hmm. magazines. He went to the show. They went out to dinner. And when she was, you know, having these writing sessions with the ghost, as she, you know, believed, you know, he's with his buddy smoking cigars, yeah, playing in the next room. In the next room. Right. He had no interest whatsoever in anything that was going on. He never did. Um, you don't so ever wild. you don't ever see a case of him horning in on this, trying to, you know, get in on it, trying to make money from it or anything. He or to take advantage of the opportunity yeah, like we talked he about. He never criticized her. As far as I can I've ever seen, he never criticized her for what was going on. He, it was just going on. Hey, whatever, you know. Interesting, whatever. Yeah. But we're going to be in the next room drinking beer, playing <laughs> cards. We don't. I don't care, you know. And so, uh, I think that's kind of what makes this so interesting, so compelling to me is that these were such ordinary people. Yeah, you know, and who were now visited by the extraordinary. That there's no way. I, I don't care who you are. There's no easy way to explain this. You nope. can't write it off as a hoax. You mm -hmm. can't write it off and say, you know, that she had a split personality. You can't write it off and say that she, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't even know that you can say that it was a ghost. I just don't, I just don't know. Yeah. It's one of those things where I, I look at this and I go, I, I don't know what happened, but obviously something did because yes. here's the product of it. Here is the physical product of what, what happened you know, even even if it wasn't a ghost, it's yeah. still. I mean, maybe it's not paranormal, but it's something super normal for this woman to be able to generate this kind of stuff. Yeah, without any kind of background in it. 
Right, know? and that, well, the, that's why I love it. And it's even I, – I love reading and I love words, but if I started busting out some Shakespeare stuff, people would notice, right? They would say that's not normal, and, right. that's, and that's why I love this so much because I think that this story, whether it is a ghost or not, what I think it is is a, a young woman who – got the drop on everyone around her who just uh, wrote her off and then she was brilliant and just decided to use that and be creative in a I way. I don't know. And you know, I, and I see what you're saying and, and I could see where something like that could happen now. Yeah. Because anyone could secretly, could secretly research anything today. But in, in 1913, how would you do it? You think it's a resource kind of thing? Yeah, how would you do it? I mean, she there's there's how would she come up with all of these things that were you know only known in you know I'm, I'm playing no no, no I, I think that's here, a very fair point actually how could she have known of these things about minute details about medieval England or about Palestine right. or without doing some kind of research okay mm -hmm. so okay so let's say she did right for a minute let's say she went down to the St Louis Library. There's no record of her ever doing this, but let's I don't I'm I'm gonna guess she didn't even know what the library was, but let's say she went and she got Rude. down to the library <laughs> and she went and researched all of these things. Do you really think in nineteen thirteen that the St. Louis Library or any other library, probably anyone's even personal library, had the kind of details she needed to put these books together? Or let's say, okay, all right, let's leave the books aside. Okay, let's let's forget all about the books. What about all the poems? 5,000 poems. What about the poems that she came up with in an instant, two complete poems mm -hmm. that night, 1926, when she went to that club meeting, yep. came up with two, instantly came up with two poems and on topics that were suggested to her by, by people there and was able to recite them the way that she did. I now, do. Edgar Lee Masters said that was impossible. I do have a response for that Who's one. Who's also a whack job, but even so, yes. he said it was impossible. So I do. So that that part I do have a response to. I just want to say, so if, yeah, like you said, famous poet Edgar Lee Masters claimed that poetry could not be written on the spot like that. He's obviously never heard the freestylings of Marshall Mathers, <laughs> Eminem. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, in 1913... Of course um, he hadn't. Marshall but, Mathers was not a... Blink. Wink in the eye of his great great grandfather at that point. Well, yes, so. but that is the joke. But, again, but, a, but I, know, I get, no, I get no, what you mean. I get it. But you do. But but again, that that's why and this, that, and I that struggle. Was good. That was a good joke. But, but it's why I struggle with this. Okay, but here's the thing, mean. though. Again, now we're talking. You've just reinforced for me the idea that in this day and age, this is a hoax someone could pull off. In 1913, I don't believe you could. I just don't believe it. I, I just don't. I just don't think. You know, maybe in New York or London or someplace, a major mm. capital, you could find all that kind of information. And not to say that St. Louis in 1913 was some backwater burg, right. although it had been 20 years before that. Uh, but the World's Fair had come and gone by that time. Yeah. So St. Louis had become more of a cosmopolitan city by 1913. But even so, do you really think this that she could have soaked up that kind of information? I mean, the research, okay, let's, let's say she did. Let's say the novels, we can just dismiss them. But the poems, 5,000 poems, I mean, sure, there are people who write that many poems, but this is a woman who has never at any point in her life shown any kind of creativity of, of any kind except for playing the piano, and that's playing someone else's music. It's not like she was writing her own. 
I so she has never done anything creative in all of those years, in you know almost thirty years of her life, and then suddenly she's putting out a play, five novels, thousands of poems. I I just don't I don't see it. But right. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I believe that she, uh, you know that that this was all a ghost yeah. either. Okay, so I have a question or per perhaps a comment. Hit them with it. I am. I'm dying over here. You guys <laughs> keep saying this woman who only has just, an eighth grade education, but I'm thinking of the time period. Well, For a true. woman of the time period, are we not saying, yay, women, she has an eighth grade education. This is further than a lot of the women had been at that time well, to mm, get that not, far. I mean, not in a city. I'm thinking about well, I guess she wasn't hmm. the city. She I was, mean, she you're living in quote Texas fingers then. there. And we I'm, know how Texas is. So. Okay, I didn't say that, but... I'm just thinking about even in the 40s and 50s that when you get to high school, the women were learning how to type and write shorthand kind of thing. So t for a woman at this time period to get to that eighth grade education, I think is marvelous. Mm -hmm. But what really stands out to me is that you say she has no interest in these things. And so if she has no interest in this kind of thing, and if it's just not part of her personality, that's what sticks out the most to me. Not the educational value, but the interest in that. If you yeah. don't have an interest in poetry, and you've never done poetry before, yeah. you've never been seen writing or reading poetry, and then all of a sudden it comes out of you, same thing with plays, then that is what is the most abstract. You were talking about the juxtaposition of all of these things in her life. Yeah. It's just all of a sudden it exists. Yeah. I no, think that's what is most important to me. I think you're right. Not because it was just because she was an eighth grade educated woman. Right. I think because just out of nowhere, ooh, look what she can do. And she's never done that before. No, I think I think you're totally right. I think we it's just easier to hit on the, the education part. But I think you're right. But it's, it's similar. Like Troy did kind of mention it. We probably should have hit harder on it. It's like she played piano. But, yeah, that was the only part of her that she where she expressed creativity. And that is the crazier thing is that we never saw the creativity be expressed. And you would think someone that could hit this caliber of it would have done so in other ways that would have shown. So yeah, no, I think you're totally right that we're, we're probably hitting on the wrong part. Yeah, no, I, and I, and I, I, I see your point and I agree. Well, and, and that was the, that I didn't, I didn't say that and you're right. And I probably should have, you're, you're absolutely right. I just wanted to make sure that I knew that, or that I said that it wasn't because she was a woman, because that's not what I meant. I mean, we're, that's we're trying I, that wasn't over my, here. Well, no, but that wasn't my thought. I mean, yeah. it wasn't that I kept saying housewife, and the reason that I that I used that as a as a term like that was because this was because of the time period. This was someone who was not expected to do anything other than stay home, make sure that dinner was on the table when her husband. That that was the time. Yeah. I mean, and and so this was not someone who had you know, a lot of opportunities for A, creative outlets, or B, for the kind of gathering of knowledge that she would have needed to do to be able to put these things out. Right. And even if she made them up, you know, the poetry thing, I mean, sure. I mean, that's where poetry is a creative thing. It's not coming from research like the novels are. But even so, she'd never expressed an interest or had done anything like that. Could it have been a spontaneous thing? Well, see, now we're getting into an area of, now we're starting to sound like the guys who came in who will just use any excuse to explain everything away. And I don't think that that, I think that that's even harder to believe than the fact, uh, for me anyway, it's harder to believe that she spontaneously around the age of 30 began 
writing thousands of poems and you know, believing that she was channeling a ghost than it is to believe she was actually channeling a ghost. Well, it's the Sherlock. That's the simpler explanation. Sherlock Holmes would yeah. say it's a ghost. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a ghost. Let's just be done yeah. with it. Yeah, and, and just be done with it. So, but I don't know. I mean, I don't uh, know. And you, in the in the end, what do you say about the story? I mean, it's, it's it's awesome. It's a great story. It's a very cool story. I, you know, I don't have an an explanation for it. No matter how you look at it. It's a phenomenal story, whether or not this was something that spontaneously occurred in her head or if there really was some sort of spiritual outside influence. Um, that's cool. So is the other. So it's like it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those stories that you can't you can't quite shake no matter how you look at it. Yeah. You can dismiss it and say, oh, it wasn't a ghost. But I can't explain the rest of it either. And that so. I t- and I definitely agree with you because it's it doesn't matter because like you said the impressive thing is the output of work the the content that was created because it's there regardless of how it happened and it's it's exactly. awesome and that's why it's a story that people remember to this day. So as far as psychic phenomena goes, what makes this story more believable than a lot of the things that we see today? Well, I, I wouldn't say that it, it, that everything that you hear about psychic phenomena today is is unbelievable. Um, but I think this story, I think, is is sort of goes hand in hand with some of the things that that I see today that I find to be, you know, more real, more believable. Um, in in this case, here was a woman who who wasn't looking for it. She had no idea that something like this was going to happen to her. And uh, it only became advertised because people started hearing about it. You know, the newspapers picked it up. I'm going to guess her, her friend probably spread the news initially, and newspapers picked it up. Um, I find that, and listen, I, I'm not one of those people who never believes in psychics because I've seen enough things to convince me there's something to a lot of this, mm-hmm. not all of it, um, but a lot of it. Um, I've met, I've known, and I do know, a lot of people that I think have things that the rest of us don't. Yeah. You know, I think I think we all have sort of an an intuition. I think that's built into human a nature. Survival mechanism. Yeah, I almost. mean something that that warns us that something is coming one way or another. Um, I think that's just part of human makeup. Some people embrace it, some people don't. Um, but I think there are people out there, um, many of whom I was okay. Let me back that up and say not many of whom, but some of whom I've known that have a better grasp on it than the rest of us do, that are able to some way kind of channel that or use that, you know, uh, to to tell them things to their advantage or to someone else's advantage, I guess. Um, but I think that what makes this story great is this is a woman who didn't didn't see it coming, didn't plan on it, didn't want it. And I find that in my line of work, and you know, as I've been doing this, is my 25th year of doing this as, as my living, so yeah. to speak. Um, I've met a lot of people, and the, the ones that I think are the real deal, the genuine article, are the people who don't advertise it. They're not the people who go around going, ooh, I'm a psychic somebody. Or, you know, their, their name on Facebook doesn't start with psychic someone. Yeah. You know, um, these are usually the people who just sort of have this, and it happens, and um, are pretty low-key about it. I mean, I've got uh, two of my closest friends mm-hmm. um, are people that I believe have a genuine ability. Um, my friend Ken and my friend April. 
um, April Slaughter, who you know is always at the you know April. I She's had a at table the conference. Right next you don't her, know yeah. Ken, but um, yeah. you'll meet him one of these days, I'm sure. Um, because I've seen enough of the stuff that they've been able to do over the years and things they've come up with to lead me to believe. I guess when it comes to this kind of stuff, um, you know, I'm the guy who needs to see it. You know, I'm, I'm from Missouri, you know, show me, you know, uh, I'm <laughs> nice. the guy who needs to see what it is that you've got to offer. And, and, you know, neither one of them have I ever like tested. It's just that it's happened, yeah. you know, and I, and, and they're not the only ones. I mean, there are plenty of people out there. I just, the people that I'm leery about are the ones who advertise how psychic they are. And that usually turns out bad for somebody down the road. It's like a Miss Cleo type. Yeah, I'm not really buying that kind of thing. You know, um, I'm, I'm. You know what? I'm very proud of you for remembering for that. For that so reference. So it's you know you don't know what. Uh-huh. Yeah, you don't. I know it. That's what I was thinking. You Call don't. Know, you don't know. You don't remember paper magazines apparently, but you <laughs> I do. I remember infomercials. Uh, yeah, but you. you well, know I still Ms. had Cleo, TV. I mean, yeah. Well, <laughs> good point. Good point. But um, so. I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that makes this story, again, one of the things that stands out for me is this isn't somebody that asked for it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is something that happened that, um, and to reiterate, I think probably really kind of messed up their life in a way, you know. Um, and I think that's often the case with a lot of people, at least the ones that I've known, um, you know, who come up, you know, who suddenly discover they have this this ability or gift, if you want to call it that, um, usually it's it messes up their life yeah. in some way. It's not usually the best thing that ever happened to them. And, you know, in a lot of cases, and with, at least with the, both friends of mine, they'll tell you it doesn't do them any good whatsoever. Everybody says, well, if you're really a psychic, why don't you pick the winning lottery numbers? And neither one of them, it's not neither how one of them know, can do anything for themselves. It's right. always other people. Right. You know, it's like, you know, they're the ones who always get kind of screwed by the whole psychic thing. Um, they can't, you know, can't do anything to help themselves, but can help other people or at least pass on things to other people, you know. So um, I think that that's, I think, one of the things that, that about this story that is relevant today and uh, I think is a, a really a, a, a fitting connection with, say, her friend who suddenly started you know, Mark phonely Twain, channeling yeah. Mark Twain, you see that same kind of thing today, too. Yeah. You know, the, the people who go around claiming, you know, you know, with widely broadcasting their psychics are usually the least psychic people you'll ever meet, but they're right. great con artists. So, right. You know. Okay, well, on that note, I think we probably should wrap this thing up. So um, thanks again for listening, everybody. Um, we really appreciate your feedback. We appreciate the fact that you're sharing this with your friends. And we're getting, uh, as Cody says, we get a lot more downloads for every single episode. So thank you so much for that and for passing it on. And we will ask you again, please get on the iTunes app. If you've got an iPhone, you, you have the app on there, even if you're not using it for whatever reason. Um, get on there onto the app. Give us a review just because it helps us to get this thing spread even further. And uh, we've had so much fun with it. I mean, this is obviously it's not our job, um, either one of our jobs. Nope. But this is fun. And as long as it keeps being fun, we're going to keep doing it. And uh, the fact that you keep spreading it for us, that makes it fun for us. Yep. So thank you again. And uh, we will see you this coming weekend for the Dead of Winter Festival. And uh, then you'll get to see just what a train wreck it is making this podcast every week, which should be fun in itself. I so can't wait. Anyway, rolling on over to Cody. All right. We will see you all this Saturday.
American Hauntings podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. Shoot me a message, follow me. I haven't talked to anybody in a while, and I, I'm, I'm in the market for some new friends. Find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Some of the music in this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brockus at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, Illinois.